When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Every fortnight on Share Radio in The Bigger Picture, we hear from Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Given the proffer-deserved holiday break, I thought we'd hear again a few of the conversations that the two of us have had in 2021. In November, Tim looked into the tensions in Central and Eastern Europe and explained why Germany is so beholden to Putin's Russia. Really, for the last 20 years, Putin has been close to uh, Lukashenko in Belarusia. They've been having conversation for many years about whether they should have a new federal or or, or structure between their two countries or indeed create some sort of unitary state. Um, Lukashenko is often referred to as a tyrant. Other people more accurately describe him as, as the last sort of Stalinist uh, in Europe, last Stalin style leader. He's, he's quite a brutal man. Um, and there are obviously mounting tensions on the Belarusian uh, and Polish border. It appears that Lukashenko and, and Putin have brought in uh, lots of uh, would be refugees uh, from various war torn parts of the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, and they've amassed, they've been amassed, they've been encouraged to amass on the Polish border. There are also tensions on the border, uh, less reported, but with Estonia uh, and Latvia, and, and most recently with um, uh, with Lithuania. Um, the reports yesterday that lots of new barbed wire is being put out across the Estonian border. And also there are mounting tensions on the border between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Putin there's mass ranks of tanks and soldiers uh, mounting on that border and uh, some people think it's an exercise other people think that it may be uh, the first step of a a kind of land grab um, by Moscow to try and get more of eastern Ukraine which they believe is naturally part of of the Russian sphere of influence. Um, uh, Today the British Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Defence Ben Wallace has announced that Britain will be cooperating more readily with the Ukrainians, selling them more naval equipment, perhaps more tanks uh, and weapons in the future. So, you know, there is this there is this tension. And then overlaying all of that, um, there are lots of people uh, in Central Europe, particularly in countries like uh, Hungary and Slovakia, who are somewhat beholden to Russia for their gas supplies. Um, And we're still waiting for the decision from Germany as to whether this new Russian pipeline, this gas pipeline, which will straddle uh, the Baltic, um, potentially going into into Germany, uh, Nord Stream 2 will continue. The British, of course, and NATO put pressure on the Germans not to accept this. British, not just for geopolitical and strategic decisions, but also because they want to wean Germany off um, the sort of the, the the traditional hydrocarbon approach to energy because the concern they have about global warming. <laughs> 
Um, but these are, you know, th this is a, a febrile and complex um, situation. And one of the problems, of course, is uh, the traditional Russian penchant for hybrid warfare. And the, the Russians are great chess players. So if they move, um, uh, you know, in, in a timed and orchestrated way, if they move migrants to one border, uh, trying to put pressure on another state to open up a pipeline, that could all be some kind of deception. And then they rolled into parts of Ukraine or vice versa. So I think there's a lot of tension right across there, a lot of concern. And, and closer to home as well. There are a couple of um, Russian bombers who are capable of carrying nuclear weapons buzzing British airspace this week. And indeed, the Russians actually um, uh, used an anti-satellite missile to blow up a, a satellite in, in space, causing the astronauts on the International Space Station to have to take cover in case... Um, the space station was damaged and they had to return to, to Earth. It's all incredibly uh, disquieting, isn't it? Um, to what extent do you think the, the change of president of the United States has emboldened Putin's hand? Well, it could be partly that. Um, and, and Afghanistan as well, the withdrawal. Yeah, I, suppose. I mean, you know, Joe Biden has had the approach that he has. Uh, he seems to, you know, Biden isn't doing well in the polls in America. Um, it could be that after the midterms uh, next year that he's a bit of a lame duck president. And of course, in a world of, of, of competing states, how will competitors and adversaries, be they Russian, Chinese or otherwise, uh, uh, try to exploit that? So yes, it is very, very difficult. Um, um, and you're right also to point out you know, the issues of satellites. The Chinese have been um, militarizing space for some time. The Americans have poured money into this area and the Russians have done what they've done also, um, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, you'd watch, I know, some Wizzy James Bond films and they talk about, yes. you know, satellites and all the rest of it. And there'd be, yeah. I know, in, in, in earlier forms of science fiction, there'd be all kinds of Wizzy lasers flying around space. But actually, here we are now fairly deep into the 21st century. Uh, and what was thought of as to be fantasy, as so often happens in fiction, actually is becoming a reality and there are lots of reports in the media how uh the chinese development of a hypersonic missile yes. uh, recently the testing successful testing of a hypersonic missile came as a huge shock to the western and, and american intelligence community um one of the problems of course in this world is that technology can enable states to take huge and often unexpected advances to leapfrog forward and in a world where so much science goes on in our universities, so much intellectual property is difficult to, to defend in a, in a digital age. Well, adversaries and competitors can accept it, they can access it, and, and then they can exploit it. So, um, yes, you feel we're, we're moving through an inflection point of great upheaval and uncertainty. Yes, clearly some upheaval in your home as well. I can hear the builders a few, <laughs> several floors yes, below you. No, no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, Poland, of course, I mean, in theory, is, is its security is guaranteed, well, guaranteed, but it, it will be defended by by NATO. At least that's the plan. Ukraine, we don't have any sort of defence policies towards Ukraine as such, do we? No, and Not, there is think, speaking an ally. No, and there, and there is good reason for that. You know, on the one hand, uh, clearly the majority, I think, of the Ukrainian population, uh, they want to be in an independent nation state that is a democracy and i think most people certainly most of the people i know in ukraine um would like to become members of the european union and nato to bring along with it the sort of rule of law civility 
trust and predictability that those institutions sort of represent. Mm. But on the other side, you know, I think there is an understanding in Washington, in London, in Paris, Bonn and elsewhere of Russian history. You know, let's not forget if you're sitting in Moscow, um, you know, Napoleon did get to the gates of, of Moscow, you know, and you know, the British uh, meddled extensively in Russia after the, uh, the revolution of 1917. Let's not forget that Hitler um, uh, you know, got very deeply into Soviet territory and indeed destroyed something in the order, I think, of 70,000 villages, as well as many, many millions of Russians and other ethnic groups within the former Soviet Union. So the Russians you know, have a certain view and for them, for their security, they see Ukraine, I think, as very much within their sphere of influence and as a sort of buffer zone. If you could imagine it like this, imagine that um, uh, that some sort of perceived foe of the United States was getting heavily involved uh, in Mexico on the southern border of the United States. Well, you can imagine the US and, and people in the capital becoming concerned about that. Or imagine if lots of um, uh, way, different ways of governance that we don't like or admire started to encroach significantly on Northwestern Europe or even in the Channel Islands. And, and I think this is the way the Russians view it. But of course, the, the real conundrum is surely in the 21st century, uh, people in an independent country such as Ukraine should ultimately have the right to choose the institutions that they're members of internationally and the sort of governance that they want to embrace. And if they want to embrace democracy and they want to embrace NATO or the European Union, shouldn't they have the rights? Do we have to go on thinking um, uh, in terms of spheres of influence? That's the tension, I think. That's the debate. Um, the dependence upon Russian gas, of course, is complicating everything and um, the new pipeline which will bypass Ukraine is not very helpful to them at all it will reduce their income but also that you know um, um, uh, makes the Ukraine perhaps less important then for 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 Europe but for Germany presumably they say the after the the um, extraordinary um, sort of Japanese tsunami and the problems with the uh, with nuclear power down there with Germany's abandonment of nuclear power has obviously causing its problems, isn't it? Because it's become ever more dependent upon Russian Russian gas, whereas France, for instance, is still, I think, 75% of its um, power generation comes from nuclear power. You're absolutely right. Um, there are many people, many world leaders, who I think are privately, if not overtly, critical of Angela Merkel's knee-jerk reaction to close down uh, their nuclear mm. energy programme. Um, yes, France, uh, uh, you know, has an enormous uh, program and um, the United Kingdom uh, looks as if it wants to not only carry on with the new generation of major nuclear power station, for example, uh, Hinkley Point in Somerset, but it also uh, is partnering with major engineering companies such as Rolls-Royce, who've just won, I think, a hundred million pounds investment from Qatar to, um, to, to develop and, and to, 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 to deliver a new generation of mini nuclear power stations. You, you know, uh, there are now apps available online. You can actually download extraordinary apps that will give you a fairly good understanding of how the United Kingdom is being powered at any moment. And I noticed this morning uh, when the sun was shining more than it is now that about 13 or 14% 
of our power came from solar. Um, and I think there's a similar amount coming from wind. Um, of course, on a very sunny day, uh, the mm -hmm. solar power goes up. If there's, but if you know, but it means that you know, although we have a diverse energy economy, in, ever increasingly so, if if the weather is against you, you can have pinch points and problems. And so, uh, whilst I applaud the British government's drive to diversity, I do think that new generation of nuclear power stations are important. And this is not just for environmental reasons, it's precisely the point about Germany. Germany has become, uh, you know, uh, although it does have some wind and, and, some, and, and some solar, um, by stripping out nuclear, they have in a potentially very dangerous way become beholden, um, not only to the older technologies of coal and gas, but they could become, you know, beholden to ever more to the Russians, rather like countries like Slovakia, the Czech Republic or Hungary have been for a long time. But presumably, if Putin actually does invade, it would actually, I mean, most Western nations would then probably regard them as being beyond the pale and would try and find alternative sources of gas. One think, I mean, it could be a question of cutting off your nose to spite your face. Well, I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? Because um, you'd have thought that if we were going to have that reaction, we'd have had it with the Crimea. We'd have had it with... Mm the Donbass, we would have had it with all kinds of Russian attempts, not, you know, in recent years yes. with um, North Moldova. Um, yes. You know, I mean, it, it's not, you know, you'd have had it with the Skripals and the attack on Salisbury. Um, you know, th there are many examples. And of course, we saw this, didn't we, in the 1930s, we saw the policy of appeasement, which is mm. somewhere between uh, don't try to exacerbate, don't try to be undiplomatic, you know, don't try to, to raise the costs and the tensions. Let's pour oil in the waters and try and smooth things over. Um, I think because of the way Russia is governed at the moment and because of Putin's track record and because of the fact that he really wants to, as a kind of puppet master, use all the levers at his disposal, um, uh, probably playing to his own audience at home, trying to project power on the international stage and all that, you know, but not playing by the international rules of the game and not playing fairly. Um, no, I think he has to be called out. And I, I have to say, I'm very much against Nord Stream 2. I think it's a huge mistake uh, that Germany has even seen this as an option. Share radio. This is Simon Rose playing again some of the conversations I've had in the bigger picture with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Back in July, Tim looked at how the Californian dream was dying and why that mattered to us all. We're going to begin with an article that appeared recently in The Atlantic, uh, which is a very influential um, publication uh, in North America. Um, it, 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 it's quite a cerebral piece. It's, it's, mm. it's rather like Prospect magazine over here. It's quite a highbrow piece. Yes, really, really good article on um, on uh, concerns around um, uh, California, because California seems to be suffering with really poor housing, really poor education. Um, you know, we saw some riots in the early nineties, mid nineties, and We've seen problems in recent years. And this is extraordinary, given that, of course, California was, uh, certainly when I was uh, a little boy, it was almost a, a beacon mm. of prosperity and of, uh, of the future. You know, it, I mean, this is the home of, um, of things like Hollywood, 
and this is the home of, of even now things like netflix originals and mm. wonderful tech companies you know um instagram or google iphones all this stuff you know um is is from silicon valley and you think of you know very smart um but uh, you know colleges like berkeley college berkeley college um so you know what is going in california well of course the story is that really the modern california really took off in the 1850s when gold was discovered mm. huge gold rush in many ways uh the wonderful city san francisco somewhere i, I honeymooned honeymoon there uh, 20 years ago um took off and california became a great city um there was huge growth uh, when california joined the union in 1850 it was one of those states that absolutely shunned uh sort of the southern tradition of slavery um it became a very very successful melting pot by you know the 1860s one in every 10 people uh were from a chinese background the irish became hugely influential and this was a huge melting pot and really by the 1920s it was um not only a very beautiful place but it was very dynamic it became a beacon of growth um and almost it heralded a world that we talk about today a world of inclusion and diversity um black people there were usually in good housing um education was good um and and really it was something to behold but as i say things have gone wrong and this article in the atlantic tells a story of great woes in recent decades where basically um uh whether it's regulation in housing or even in the way that chemist shops are run or farms are run that this has become very much a highly regulated state and a state that has suffered all kinds of regulatory capture or capture by producers yes. there's been lots of very for example powerful white middle class people who have become activists and and used uh their own minority interests using pulling their own levers of democracy um to create barriers of entry to other people and really to create their own uh, oases of 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 sort of introspection and and distance from from the mainstream this has also affected things like energy supply in california been all kinds of blackouts in recent years but it's a real warning from when you know, what was once a dream and, and was so emblematic of what the future could be and and all the good things cultural liberalism inclusion diversity as well as all the economic dynamism my my it's gone so wrong so it's not setting read is and why has it gone like that i mean i have i have a friend who's of a libertarian bent an american who lived in san francisco a bit of an anglophile i mean came over coincidentally at the time of the financial crisis or 2007-2008 but i mean she already even then was hating the way that san francisco was going i think rent controls all manner of things that she felt really were going to doom the city ultimately and got out while she could and not regretted it yeah i i think the first thing is Uh, I mean when California really you know uh took off in the 1850s the 1860s you've got to remember this was before the transcontinental railway it was before hmm. things like the Panama Canal and California was more connected to the economy of the Pacific Rim and in a way the far east than than I think we often realize you know New York Boston all those places in the east were a long long way away and 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 they were disconnected in the sense so mm. 
part of this dream, I think, has been gnawed away at, at the rise, quite frankly, of great powerhouses of the Far East, you know, that have eaten market share, that have got into manufacturing. The obvious ones are Taiwan, South Korea, Japan. There's something in all that. So that's sort of an external reason. They're living in a very competitive part of the world. But also there are these internal concerns where for all the great things and the things that California has got right, you know, the diversity issues, the inclusion, the avoidance of, 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 of quite frankly, policies steeped in Southern racism, you know, all those things. Um, the people who have made the money, the people who have done well on the back of, if you will, uh, for the sake of communication, the capitalist dream, yes. um, they have nevertheless, they've sabotaged um, modern Californian democracy. And what they've done is um, they've used very articulate, very powerful minority voices. This is sort of wealthy white people. And they've often um, used legislative um, uh, capture um, to um, unfairly uh, enrich themselves and to exclude other people. And so California, in a way, uh, modern California, is no longer uh, rooted in, in, in those joint principles of cultural liberalism and inclusion and that economic dynamism. And of course, once you lose the economic dynamism and you lose the inclusion, the whole thing balkanizes and yes. falls apart. Um, and, and this really matters, Simon, and the reason it really matters, and it matters for us here in Britain and in Europe and for the rest of the world, is it, first of all, it raises the question, uh, are other parts of the so-called advanced world going to fall in this, in this mm. way, something to watch out for? But secondly, remember, this is the world's fifth biggest economy. California is a colossus. You know, if California were a country on its own, it's absolutely up there with, um, you know, with Japan, with yes. Britain, with France, with, Germany, with the other, you know, with, with modern China, the other great economic powerhouses. Well, this is the bizarre thing, isn't it? I mean, it's home of Silicon Valley, some of the most financially successful companies in the entire world. Exactly. So if, if the dream dies, now look, I'm an optimist and I think that lots of the nimbyism that's gone on, lots of the um, damaging and often counterproductive um, economic interventionism that's gone on in recent decades. And, and you know, uh, although it's a very liberal state and, and the Democrats have held sway there for a long time, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in no way letting Republicans off the book here. I think California really needs a wake up call and they need to reassess, reflect on what made them great and what set them on the right trajectory and what has led you know to many of these ongoing success stories like mm. Silicon Valley and some you know all the good stuff but where it's going wrong particularly in housing in farming in energy in education they've got to really think hard and and if they need a bit more dynamism injected, a little bit more competition, for example, if they need more charter schools or free schools, all kinds of things, well, you know, bring it on. Um, um, if regulation, um, for example, zoning laws has mm. been playing into the hands of, of, of the already rich and powerful um, uh, to the exclusion of of people who want to get on the ladder of the dream. Yes, there's a great deal of resentment, I believe, amongst exactly. people who are not part of Silicon Valley about the way, and apart from anything else, the, the price of housing has just gone beyond their reach. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, so so this requires, 
an assessment and perhaps some you know supply side reforms um mm. i don't think that quite frankly you know rich powerful people should be allowed uh, to stop the development of of new housing particularly sustainable forms mm. of housing um if you know just by using legislative control and favor and kind of crowding people out i think that's unfair and that's not what really california should be about california should be about well if you can build you know green and sustainable progressive homes uh, and and uh, and do this in an efficient and effective way well land should be released for it you know and there should be less um domination of the planning uh, system to control to enrich those who already have yes, which yes. what happens um and you know if property prices have to go down a bit for the for the rich and powerful because once you have greater supply well um you know hopefully prices will go down in, in certain ways and that's what markets are about well so be it but i prefer that than the sort of diversive rancor that you're seeing developing california sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose with highlights of my 2021 Bigger Picture Conversations with Professor Tim Evans. In November, Tim revealed that he didn't always have his nose in learned papers, but sometimes actually watched the Gogglebox. He particularly admired a TV programme in which Ed Balls looked at the care system, which is suffering a crisis, about which the country seems to be in denial. Um, I've been enthralled uh, on watching... Uh... Ed Balls, the former Labour MP and Cabinet Minister and advisor to Labour Chancellor Gordon Brown, watching Ed's series um, Inside the Care Crisis, which uh, has been uh, on the BBC uh, television recently. And I've been enthralled by it because um, he has really brought some home truths to light, um, things that not only resonate with me because I am a part-time carer, um, or have been up to recently two elderly parents and, and now one elderly parent, but because he's cast a light on the scale of a problem which in this country we're often in denial of. And one of the reasons we're in denial uh, is because when we talk about people being unwell uh, or we talk about any form of healthcare, we tend to talk about the NHS. And one of the really impressive things that Ed Balls has done is locate um, the NHS debate in the context of the broader picture of UK health and social care. You know, if the NHS has, for example, around 100,000 beds, you know, ICU, acute, surgical, you know, beds, well, there are about 400,000 beds in the UK's um, health uh, social care sector and that can range from people who are i don't know in in the long-term care setting somewhere like uh, the Royal hospital for neurodisability which is in putney in london which deals with often people who are in comas for a long term or have huntington's disease it can range to other units like uh, uh, the children's trust used to be called tabworth court down in surrey which deals with children who have multi and profound um, disabilities um, to people who are in more familiar, older people in more familiar residential or nursing homes, uh, nursing home settings. There are also, as he pointed out, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are receiving care in their own homes, often 
uh, by loved ones. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, we're dealing with the sect here that in the round, if you include the care home setting and the domiciliary setting, you're dealing with well over a million people. And I just wish that, for example, during the pandemic, and this is something Ed Balls was really upfront about, this is something he said, and I agree with him, that when people were clapping for the NHS, um, I wish we were clapping more than just for the NHS and the 100,000 beds that the that, that service has. I wish we were clapping for the UK's health and social care sector, be it the NHS, be it for-profit, be it not-for-profit, be it the medical military sector, which does so, so much, not only for our armed forces, but is again currently stepping up with additional ambulance support. You know, to make our health and social care work in this country, um, it is not any one component. There are huge charities out, like, out there, like the British Heart Foundation or Alzheimer's UK or P Parkinson's, you know, or or the Salvation Army or Methodist care homes or Jewish care, you name it. It's, a, it's an extraordinary and rich diversity. It's a huge tapestry. The, the National Union of Mine Workers, convalescent homes, you know, people forget that, that that union has long had its own convalescent homes. And for me, um, they all do an extraordinary uh, job. And I just wish we raised our gaze more and thought about those elements. And he makes the key point um, that because we don't often think of them, uh, often people are left in neglect, people, particularly people who don't have uh, families, you know, they're isolated. This is not a well-resourced area. Uh, it's a real struggle to get more money to get to the hands of social services directors and, and for things to be funded. Um, it is a bit of a Cinderella service and it's overlooked and it's forgotten. Yes. Well, I really salute Ed Balls for what he's done. Yes. Under even greater pressure, of course, in the pandemic, when NHS was sort of basically pushing people out into the care sector, which was less well prepared uh, and able to defend its itself and its patients. Um, I mean, in theory, of course, the, 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 this sort of proposed rise in national insurance is supposed to somehow magically solve all the problems in the social care sector. I, I imagine from what you've been saying, you don't necessarily think that's going to work. Well, the first thing is, I have no um, way of knowing if the additional uh, level of 1.25% of, of, of for national insurance, I have no idea if that money is actually going to come forward because we have no way of knowing the extent to which we're at the UK's peak of Laffer curve. And that if you add a tax, there's no, there's no absolute you know, recipe that says you're going to get more money in. Yeah. You may go yeah. over the top of the Laffer curve and get less money in. Secondly, if we do get the extra 12 and a half billion a year that the government want to derive from this extra tax, Will that actually get through to frontline people who to receive care and treatment? And now the data is in from you know from 2002 to, to 2020 of all the extra money that the the for example Tony Blair uh, put into the NHS, very very little of that, and I mean a tiny percentage, actually ever got through. To frontline patient care. Most of it was eaten up with extra administration or went off to various interest groups, um, you know, who may, may have negotiated pay increases and all yes. that. Um, you know, and, and that's not me saying doctors and nurses really were 
Portsmouth or anyone shouldn't have more pay. But let's not assume that this extra money will, will actually get through to people in the next two or three years in the NHS. Um, and then beyond that, the idea that somehow this money is going to be I know, tapered away from the NHS to actually get into social care. Well, you know, we will see if any of this happens. It is possible, just to tie some of this package together today, it is possible that with the the extraordinary hike in energy prices that we're seeing from for a whole range of reasons uh, around the world at the moment it is possible you know it's very rare you see these kind of energy increases around the world where you don't have some kind of recession that follows mm. um and do i really believe rishi sunak's view that the british economy is going to grow in the way he thinks it's going to grow over the next two or three years I'm not sure I believe those statistics. Will this tax base increase in the way that the government wants? I don't know. If it does, will any of that money get through to patients? And then after it, people in social care? I don't know. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. And this is Simon Rose playing highlights of my 2021 chats with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. In September, Tim explained why he was concerned about science's replication crisis, even though he thought it might present an opportunity for the future. First, though, he had to explain to me what the replication crisis was. Well, of course, uh, the replication crisis really relates to um, uh, uh, the way we study and research um, in the various scientific fields. Um, because, of course, the, the, the great argument for science is that science... Um, uh, uh, is about experimentation, it's about doing tests, um, and it's about uh, discovering um, patterns, trends, whatever, uh, concepts, frameworks, theories that enable you to surface and better understand the world, and in so doing, um, uh, uh, really predict certain outcomes from certain inputs so if you know if i drop my watch it will fall and we know that from the law of gravity the thing that really i think ultimately demarcates science from um for example from religion or or superstition or other belief systems is that ultimately um science examines that which uh, sir Karl popper said is falsifiable you know you're testing something that is false falsifiable i could argue as i stare at a window here that there are pixies in the garden the problem is you can't test that and you can't say um that it's true or false but if i drop my watch um um you know and i'm wrong well it is falsifiable and that predictive element of science um you know uncovering laws that predict the way things work, be it in biology or chemistry or economics or the social sciences, that is an important part. And it's an important part, not just of science, but also, of course, of the academy and of universities. And um, in recent years, there has been a debate. Um, it's a fairly esoteric debate, but it is, I think, an important one for wider society that for all the you know, vast amount of output from our, you know, university and commercial and research communities. Um, um, there is a problem because when um, a lot of uh, scientific research is presented, uh, reaching certain conclusions, well, 
if it's science, you would hope to be able to replicate, to repeat the experiment or, or to test. And there's a replication crisis because um, it turns out that an awful lot of the studies that are published or produced um, are not as replicable replicable as as we would like um yeah. for example uh, there was a, an attempt in 2015 to reproduce 100 psychology studies um but the researchers were only able to produce 39 of them um uh in there was a big international effort more recently in 2018 to to reproduce some prominent studies um but out of 28 they could only get the same results um on 14 occasions um, and there's been a lot about this, not just in various academic journals, but also in, in really important, you know, uh, publications, well-known publications, journals like Nature and Science. And, and you know, Nature and Science found that, of, um, um, that out of an awful lot of the, the studies they've looked at, there is a very, very sizable proportion of, of seemingly or previously thought of very mm. eminent research that is, um, not you you cannot repeat and so there's you know there are lots of um theories as to why this is the case there are people who believe that the peer review process is itself gamed by certain individuals that you know once you capture it an editorial board and you go through peer review yes are you part of an ecosystem that can have uh, all kinds of biases um can there be nepotism um some people have suggested that this is to do with funding and the politicization of funding um you know uh, or commercial incentive mm. the, 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 the research will follow the funder whether it's the government or a big corporate donor or something um but this has become quite a problem and it is not just in you know in the social sciences this is not just in sociology or psychology um there is there's a lot of uh, research that 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 has not been been able to be you know replicated in areas such as biology um and uh it, you know it's, it's not a crisis but it's 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 creating a lot of thought on how can we improve um the way we do science and how can we improve rep replicability for the 21st century so you know, people are thinking yeah. about statistical mm -hmm. techniques um about how you know about new funding agencies um um you know um but basically there's a movement to thinking in terms of how we upgrade our science to improve it um I was fairly sure there was a quote from the great physicist Richard Feynman. This, this one will do. I'm not sure it's the one I was looking for. It doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. And so presumably we're getting all these papers that are actually producing science that isn't actually correct. If it can't be replicated, then there's clearly something wrong, whether by design or mistake. Or, you know, or just simply try to hoax others, it isn't right. And it, surely it's quite important that the science be correct. Uh, isn't there actually a danger from spurious science that people then believe, that don't understand it hasn't been replicated, will actually believe what is being hypothesised? Exactly. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. This is why it is concerning. Um, um, so, you know, the... I mean, I think there's going to be, I think the consequence of this will be a general drift towards much greater transparency. Mm. I think there'll probably be more openness guidelines. Um, I think that um, that there will be a review of the way 
a lot of research is funded over time. Um, I think that um, there will have to be a review of the way that journals um, do their peer review. Um, there will be, for example, I think pre-registering of research and that there will be a move in future where very highly rated, uh, highly regarded and highly rated journals um, actually test or, or get others to, to, to replicate upfront uh, a lot of the research to prove the replicability. Um, um, you know, so, so this is very, very important, but I think that I think science is hugely important. I think that science in the public realm in our civil society is hugely important. And I think that having good and reliable source at science is, is vital. I mean, look, uh, this is also about honesty. And I, I well remember when I was doing my PhD nearly 30 years ago now, um, I remember I had a hypothesis. I am a social scientist. Mm. And my hypothesis was that the group of people I were looking at had a particular class background but actually when i did the research my hypothesis was wrong mm. and in fact the answer to what i was investigating was somewhere completely it was it was not that i was dealing with people of a particular class background it was dealing it was that i was dealing with a group of people with a much higher degree of secularity and a much lower degree of religiosity than than the wider cohorts um although i was wrong um my research was uh, and my reputation was greatly enhanced by being honest and being upfront and you know re and and you know sort of uh, taking my research in in the different direction that it needed to go in for my phd and i think that um that kind of honesty and 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 openness is vital i yes. think an awful lot of people in academia there's huge pressure on academics now to research, to publish, to get results. And, and sometimes when people are under duress and huge pressure, they don't always have the time or the incentives to do mm. things as perhaps they would wish. Yes. And so I think there's an awful lot in this. It is of huge importance to the way we locate science, think about it and do it not only in the academy, but our broader society. And about the same time you were trying to stand up your hypothesis was, was, was when we got that extraordinary news that cold fusion had been achieved, which turned out to be wrong because it couldn't be replicated. That's the most famous example I could think of, of you know, uh, me, a layman, knowing yeah. that, that you know, we believe we've achieved something with science, but you can't actually reproduce it. And that's, well, that's 30, 32 years ago, I think, late 80s. Look, look I, I am an optimist, Simon, and I do think that although this has been cast as a crisis, um, uh, I, I disagree with that. I think I would not call it a replication crisis. I would call it a replication opportunity. Um, and I think that it's a way that we can improve our science for this century. You know, you only have to go back to the Enlightenment and, 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 and the, you know, 17th and 18th centuries uh, and look at what we've achieved today to see the leaps and bounds we've made. This is another great opportunity for a great leap forward. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose with highlights of my 2021 interviews with Professor Tim Evans. Early in November, he paid tribute to Lord Frank Field, 
looking at his ideas way ahead of their time on the provision of unemployment benefit. I was very moved um, when it was announced uh, recently in the House of Lords uh, that the Labour peer, Frank Field, uh, is uh, terminally ill. Um, uh, I think Frank Field uh, is someone who, he's one of those politicians, he's rather like David Amos, uh, whichever tribe he or she might be formerly a member of, they're, they're genuinely respected by people of all stripes yes. um, and of all political persuasions. F fewer of them than there used to be, I feel, but yes. Yes, I mean, well... I've never heard anybody have a bad word to say about Frank Field. Exactly, and, 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 that, and that's, I think, part of the greatness of, of, of him. Um, very much a Labour politician, like many politicians, though slightly quirky, um, uh, he, a, a, a Christian through and through. Uh, someone who's riven with the almost 19th century tradition of British socialism, not only a Christian socialist, but someone very much in the mutualist and the cooperative tradition. So he believed in what some people have described as socialism without the state, of, of, of not simply the phrase public ownership being equated with state ownership, but that often public ownership being equated with the concept that actual and real members of the public mm. own stuff. Now, of course, you see that today, whether um, you see it with the John Lewis partnership or very, various cooperative enterprises. But that was the, um, the tradition uh, that Frankfield is from. And on that basis, he was always able to have really interesting conversations, uh, be it with the sort of left of the Labour Party, um, or the right wing of the Labour Party. I remember very early in May 1994, as, as, as Tony Blair was becoming this new star of sort of new Labour in 94, um, uh, Tony Blair did an interesting speech uh, about the history of the cooperative and friendly society movement very much being one of the core elements of the Labour tradition. No one extolled the virtues of that movement more than Frank Field. So it's really, really, really sad uh, that he is so poorly um, and is so close in. And all the more extraordinary uh, where this um, there was announced in the House of Lords um, 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 uh, during the reading um, of, 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 an assist, of the assisted dying bill. Um, uh, uh, and I thought that really was very, very moving. And you know when you've got a great politician um, when they're actually loved by all sides, they've almost, particularly when they've entered the House of Lords, they almost transcend, you know, stripe or tribe. Um, and it was it was quite moving to watch it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting, but it's a, obviously a terribly difficult um, debate. You can understand the argument on both sides. One can't with every political topic, but on this one, I think almost everybody can sort of see um, the arguments on both sides. But I'm quite intrigued because you pointed out to me that, that you you picked up on one of Frank Field's, I was going to say earlier ideas, but probably mid-career idea for him. He's been going around quite a long time and pointing me towards a, a paper you wrote based on an idea of his back in, was it 1990? Hard to think that's over 30 years ago, Tim. Yeah, I wrote a think tank uh, paper. I'd, I'd read uh, an article that mentioned Frank Field. It was in the Sunday Times um, in July 1990, uh, and it was called Giving uh, the, the Public a Bigger Dole of Authority. 
and he talked about the historic role of friendly societies and, and the sort of cooperative tradition. And this article really fascinated me because it was quite unusual. In a way, although it was published in 1990, in, in, in a way it was, it was sort of five or ten years ahead, I have to say, of what later become, uh, became New Labour. And, um, uh, and yes, I wrote a paper where I explored the role of mutuals, cooperatives, um, um, it, it, you know, in the context of the welfare state. Um, and I not only published that paper in 1990, but I actually went on to, to write several other things. Later, when I was the public affairs director in, in the mid and late 1990s for Britain's independent health and social care sector, um, uh, and I actually went on to represent uh, many organisations uh, be they in the mutual or charitable or cooperative tradition, uh, really Frankfield and his ideas and the world he'd opened up before me were always in my mind. I mean, I found myself in a job where I was representing great charities uh, like um, uh, uh, Nuffield Hospitals um, or the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability in Putney uh, or uh, Tadworth Court, uh, which became a charity, although some years ago it used to be the what you might call the country wing of Great Ormond Street uh, right through to the National Union of Mine Workers uh, convalescent homes uh, and also many other what you might call trade union aligned independent healthcare schemes for one being Benenden Healthcare which has more than a million members and is headquartered down in Kent but it was really frank that opened up my eyes to that movement of what used to be called collective self-help um, or, or, or indeed various forms of socialism without the state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think whatever your own academic discipline is, whether you know, do, do philosophy or theology or sociology or, or politics or economics or, or, or physics, um, when you come across great thinkers uh, who open up a completely new vector in your area of interest to you, um, you are to an extent permanently in, your, in, in debt. So I have a tremendous amount of respect and fellow feeling for Frank Field. Um, and, um, and I know uh, that, that clearly there are lots of people in the Palace of Westminster uh, who will miss him. Yeah. We're almost out of time. I was intrigued by one thing in your paper, which I, I, I didn't know, talking about how the, the non-state system uh, by 1911 was covering over 9 million people, but about how subsequently the BMA and the private insurance companies were lobbied the government because they were so opposed to the friendly societies, basically because they feared the, the competition. They didn't like the idea that the friendly societies might be um, essentially you know, poaching business that they felt was theirs. Yes, it, this is true. And it's actually written up in huge detail by a brilliant, a brilliant um, a book uh, published um, many years ago, I think in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, by Dr. David Green, who at the time had been a Labour councillor, I think on Nottingham City Council. And the book is called Working Class Patients and the Medical Establishment. Um, and the reality is that although Lloyd George um, very much championed the National Insurance Act of 1911 and wanted in many ways to extend uh, friendly society benefits and this sort of socialism without the state to more people, um, when the bill was going through Parliament, uh, the posher, uh, more middle-class uh, uh, provident associations 
um, as well as the BMA. Um, I think they held, uh, they hired a lobbyist. I think the lobbyist, I think, delving into my memory here, was JWB Braithwaite, um, and Lloyd George lost control of the bill. Um, it was turned on its head, and the bill actually was used um, to further the interests of uh, the well-heeled doctors. The doctors in this country at that point had long resented um, uh, the friendly societies. Um, remember in the 19th century, in their own records, the, the BMA referred to themselves as medical gentlemen, and they somewhat resented being tied down both in terms of pay and status to what ordinary people through their trade unions and their friendly societies were prepared to pay for their services. But anyway, Lloyd George lost control of the bill and between 1911 and 1915, uh, because doctors could now access a guaranteed salary from the new tax that was national insurance, the average doctor in Britain doubled their salary between 1911 and 1915. And to administer the new system, for example, the panel and the GP services, uh, the government had to create by 1919, the Department of Health. Um, of course, decades later, um, I think it was Niren Bevan who said that to uh, create the National Health Service itself, he'd had to stuff uh, the, 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 the doctor's mouths with gold. Um, uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the clever things I think about the British Medical Association, if I can speak candidly, is, is you often see them use these wonderful lobby phrases on television. And, but there's an interesting logic attached. So, you know, someone from the BMA will say doctors are so important uh, and healthcare is so important. Uh, our healthcare should be on monetary consideration. And we all sit there and nod sagely in a civilized society, yes, it should. Then they add, that's why our members should have a five or seven or 10% pay increase. And it always makes me smile um, when you really know the history of this, and certainly the class aspects of it, um, um, that you're actually dealing with a good old fashioned professional power, which of course goes back to the ancient days of Rome um, and, uh, and Greece and so on. Those were some of the conversations I had during 2021 with Professor Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in The Bigger Picture. I look forward to welcoming Tim back onto Share Radio early in 2022 and would like to take this opportunity to wish all Share Radio's listeners a happy, prosperous and let us hope rather freer New Year. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.